All right. Welcome back to the Onyx Report, people. I hope folks are doing as well as possible in these crazy times, most particularly in regard to you and your family's health. Uh, I want to send out some positive energy and uh, my best wishes to you and yours as far as that. And then, of course, navigating this economy. And unfortunately, those things in the midst of this pandemic are tied together. Uh, so, again, uh, the Onyx Report we, we definitely will be taking calls within the first after the first half hour for our guest today. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a quick moment. Uh, support the show. You can go on to Cash App and look for dollar sign Dr. T Hassan J or PayPal uh, T Hassan J or on Patreon. And on Patreon, I also have a film review um, series for my twenty dollar a month patrons, uh, where we basically kind of you know give you some talking points and some historical uh, periods to help you have dialogue with your own children, most particularly your sons, in regard to black masculinity, manhood, and issues that pertain to that. So uh, that's on Patreon.com. Just look up T.H. Johnson, and that's for my $20 a month patrons. Um, so today, we're going to cover a couple of things, which, as you guys know, I like to kind of start with some current events just to kind of put us on track with where things are. Uh, on this uh, April uh, 29th. And what i like to start with is just an overview of Fresno County. According to their public health uh, page on the County of Fresno website, um, you know, I'm not sure the accuracy of these numbers, especially considering that there's still a dearth, a number of, of tests given. Uh, there are people who are suffering at home who've never gone into the hospital, and unfortunately people who are passing away, but all considering Fresno County is reporting that there's a total of 538 cases of COVID-19 in the area, uh, 44 of which are travel-related, travel uh, 206 of which, of which are close contact, 238 are community spread, and there are 50 cases under investigation. So we've had about total seven deaths, and that's been about since the same since last week, and about 97 people who have ever been hospitalized for it and it's also reporting 202 people have recovered so that's what what's been reported um i truly hope that uh things continue to get better as we transition into a period where we are about to go back uh to you know work on one level or another across the country um my hopes for the best for people uh so a couple of a uh, couple of things Let's see, one of the main cases I wanted to bring to your attention is an article on Blavity.com, and the title is Black Man Running Through Georgia Neighborhood Killed by Two White Men Who Thought He Was a Burglary Suspect. No one has been charged or arrested in connection with the killing. Now, that's of the time of this article, which was posted two days ago, again on Blavity.com, an article written by Alyssa Curtis. Uh, so I haven't checked uh, to see if there's been any updated news but if you're just hearing about it, you might want to look into it. This is about Ahmad Arbery, was believed to be just jogging in a quiet suburban neighborhood uh, when he was pursued, shot, and killed by a white resident and their father, who suspected him of committing robberies in the area. Now his family is worried the case won't get the attention they believe it deserves because of social distancing orders. So this sounds very familiar. Um, not only has this been happening uh, for years, generations even, but this is a this sounds very much like a case that set the country on fire a number of years ago 
uh, when, and really kicked activism to a whole new level that we may not have seen since the uh, you know late 80s, early 90s um, protests against uh, South Africa. So uh, at the end of the day, we need to keep the spirit, keep the energy of protest going um, as at the end of the day, these brothers in many instances and sisters are still being killed arbitrarily and black men still find themselves dying at rates between 200 and 300 per year at police and vigilante violence. So look into that case and see if there's any way you can support. Uh, the next up is an article on CNN, believe it or not, written by one Chauncey Alcorn, April 28th. This was posted yesterday. And it's about black barbershop owners divided over coronavirus social distancing, right? And so one of the things the article kind of points out is the way in which um, black small business owners are suffering, especially business owners that you know need to come in direct contact with their clients. Uh, there are some who have been dying um, when they have tried to work. There are others who are suffering financially uh, when they haven't been able to. And the whole question of what's going to happen. Now, this is particularly important because in terms of black businesses, we know that over 90% of black businesses have one employee and um, that in and of itself creates a problem, especially when support mechanisms for black business or for small businesses in relation to how the federal government defines it generally refers to businesses with around 500 employees. So in many ways, this leaves black businesses kind of out in the cold and creates a dangerous uh, kind of precedent in terms of where we sit. And I want to shout out my colleague, uh, activist Nyota Uhuru, who makes a beautiful point in regard to this article where she says, not just barbers, don't get me started on the whole small business loan fake out they do when it comes to black businesses. They don't get bailed out. They get locked out of the bailout process. A lot of black business owners are not going to come back from this. That's the least of it. What will the impact be for black Main Street business people in 50 to 100 years? How much wider the wealth gap? We may get stuck in a hole we may never get out of, and black leaders are not taking, are not talking tangibles, reparations, or a black agenda. Uh, we've seen this kind of thing before, especially in, in, in response to a crisis. Like if we think back a little bit to uh, New Orleans and we think about what happened in terms of the floods, the breaking of the levees, fast forward a couple years from that and there's an absence of black faces so in other words there was a way in which tragedy was used to uh, really export a whole community and really kind of revise the entire economic face of New Orleans so there are ways in which uh, you know tragedies uh, uh, world occurrences are, are used in such fashion and it could very well seem like this pandemic might be doing the same in regard to uh, black folk. So in regard to black business, uh, there's definitely an alarm for making sure we're supported because at the end of the day, many are losing their jobs. Last I checked, uh, the, there were over 26 million, that was as of last week, who filed for unemployment. Um, there are still whole corporations, whole businesses that haven't officially fired their employees. Um, they've only been partially, they've, they've really just not been allowed hours. So they've not been fired. Therefore, many of them can't file fully for unemployment. You can some, depending on the state, can partially file for partial unemployment. But at the end of the day, because they haven't been released yet, they're technically considered employed. So that 26 million is probably very low in terms of the impact. And, and the percentage of black folk that fall in that framework are likely to be fairly high uh, in terms of employment. So there's a lot on the table. 
that we need to stay conscious of. There are two articles also, one in the FresnoB.com newspaper that talks about uh, employee uh, in, at Fre in Fresno's Foster Farm uh, has the coronavirus, the company confirms. And another article on NBC News about Tyson Foods chairman warning that the food supply chain is breaking. So these two, you know, one local, one national kind of speak to uh, one of the next issues on the table uh, that many have been concerned about, but not necessarily talking about as often as I would have suspected. And that is the breaking down of the food chains and what that actually does uh, in terms of grocery stores, larger stores from Walmart to Costco and so on and so forth. If the, the supply lines are broken down, if, if, if the factories are closing down where they process everything from meat to other goods, if employees are not able to work because of environmental safety is not being provided, that kind of thing can have a domino effect. And it's questionable as to how far we may be in that at this very moment. So, you know, please be aware of that um, and try and do your best to kind of do what you can to prepare for whatever alternatives, whatever issues might present themselves. Uh, that's about all many of us can do because we are a society that is very much dependent upon systems and structures. Whereas, you know, in my grandmother's era, and I remember this growing up, every family had a yard where they were growing their own vegetables. I remember, you know, my grandmother and my grandfather, every time we would visit, they would take us out in the garden and show us what they were growing. Um, being Generation X, I would say mine was the generation that didn't really uh, replicate those practices. And in many ways, we're starting to see at least some of the fallout from that. And that's not to say that overnight you'd be able to support yourself with whatever garden you had in your backyard, but at the very least, the skill set would have been maintained. The skill set of how to grow your own food that goes back to slavery, goes back to um, um, you know the various types of labor, uh, particularly agricultural labor that we had to perform from reconstruction on, definitely um, um, sharecropping, those are the things our grandparents held on to. And by the time we get to Generation X, we lost a lot of that. So if that is a skill that you have, um, you know, I would urge people to to find ways to communicate that best you can to people who uh, might be interested in trying it, because it is not something that is as widely practiced in the black community as it used to. And we definitely can see the need for it. Uh, last up, let me see here. Where did I put it? Just had it up a moment ago and I moved it off my screen, which means that it will probably pop up as soon as the show is over. Um, that's okay. So we'll just go from there. Uh, we'll transition here. So, so anyway, skipping ahead, um, just be mindful, folks. Keep your head on a swivel, and I wish you the best as far as that. Today, I want to introduce my guest, one Leroy F. Moore, Jr., He's the founder of Crip Hop Nation. Um, since the 1990s, he's written the column Illin' and Chillin' for Poor Magazine. He's one of the founding members of the National Black Disability and activists around police brutality against people with disabilities. Uh, so he's the founding member of National Black Disability. Uh, Leroy has started and helps uh, start organizations like Disability Advocates of Minorities Organization to Sins in Invalid to Crip Hop Nation. Uh, his cultural work includes film documentary, Where is Hope? Police Brutality Against People with Disabilities, spoken word CDs, poetry books, 
and children's books, Black Disabled Art History 101, um, published by uh, Proxicodal Justice Press. I may have mispronounced that. His graphic novel, Crip Hop Graphic Novel Issue 1, Brown Disabled Young Woman Superhero Brings Disability Justice to Hip Hop, was published by Poor Press 2019 and 2020. Under Poor Press, Leroy has published Black Disabled Ancestors. Moore has traveled internationally, networking with other dis disabled activists and artists. Moore has wrote, sang, and collaborated to do music videos on Black Disabled Men. And you can find him on www.cripphopnation, crip with a K, criphopnation.com, www.blackdisability.org, www.poormagazine.org, slash crip underscore hop, twitter.com, slash criphopnation, and on Facebook under Leroy F. Moore Jr. So I'd like to welcome Leroy Moore to the Onyx Report. How you doing, sir? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me. Ah, man. Thank you for coming on, man. I appreciate it. I know you're busy. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to start at the beginning when I interview because I want people to know how my guests got to the work that they're at now. So if you could tell us, um, where were you born and 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 what would you say were the earliest stages of being introduced to the kind of work you would eventually do. Okay, thanks a lot. So I was born in the coldest place on earth. It's not the North Pole, it's <laughs> Buffalo, New York. So <laughs> okay. Buffalo, New York, you know, before, uh, you know, this whole climate change was the coldest. I mean, I lie on. Mother lost her car in a snowstorm for five months back, back in the 70s. So, yeah, so that's hardcore. So, um, how, how, how I got into my work of race and disability, especially black people and disability, go back to the 1979, and me and two other black disabled boys went upstairs to my room and we did a letter campaign. So letter campaign back in 1979 is with pen and paper, <laughs> no computers. Mm. So we wrote everybody from Jesse Jackson to Urban Lee to NWACP saying where is black disabled boys, black disabled anything. Mm. And we got back foreign letters saying that there's nothing out there. So these foreign letters came from PhDs, came from, you know, EDs, the nonprofits, came from a lot of black organizations. So that led me to the work that I'm doing now um, under Crip Hop um, and all my advocacy throughout the years especially police brutality against black disabled people. Um, you know, I started my own nonprofit in the 90s for people of color with disabilities and also started a nonprofit with a friend of mine, Sins and Ballad, and I left that a couple of years to really concentrate on black community and disability, especially black disabled men. Mm -hmm. So, um, a couple of years, I don't know, 
this is only a year year ago. Me and, and Keith Jones and Latif McLeod and Otis Smith started an online video monthly conversation called Black Men Talk. Mm, okay. So we do that every month. And yeah, so here I am, 53 years old, still trying to knock on doors of black organization, black studies, hip hop mm. studies, mm. because the black disabled issues are not seen as studyable. But if you look through history, I always say that black disabled men started the whole music industry. Mm. You know, if you go back to, you know, freak shows, it's mainly black disabled men. Ah, uh, yes. They come out with the blues, of course, you know, black blind men. Mm. So, you know, the history is there, but um, a lot of um, PhDs in black studies don't see disability as the thing to study. Yeah. So yeah. So. Well, and I noticed you've done some work with Dr. Tommy Curry on that, who 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 has been doing work on black men and disability. So I, I've noticed you had some inroads there. Um, yes, yes, yes. It, yes. I, I interviewed him twice. So okay, beautiful. Can 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 you speak to you know if you're comfortable the type of disability that uh, you grappled with or coming yeah. in with? Yeah, yeah, I was born with um, cerebral palsy, so um, the story of the story of mine, and I'm also a poet, so I do a lot of poetry. I did this poem about my birth um, because I was I was born, you know, a healthy, quote-unquote healthy boy, and my mom took me home in Buffalo, New York, and that's when I had a nosebleed and I stopped breathing. Mm. You know, and back then, um, the snow was so high that no ambulance, no car was coming. So my father, my father was a football player, you know, back then with the Buffalo Bills. So he took me in his arms and ran to to the hospital in Buffalo, New York. During wow. The so, wow. Yeah. Wow. And what, what did they say when you got to the hospital? What happened? <laughs> Yeah, I got to the hospital. Of course, I was, you know, blue. I was dead, you know. Um, so because of that, um, they, you know, tried to save my life, and they did. My 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 father um, pushed the skinny white <laughs> doctor back into the operating room. Then he came back and said, "Okay, your son is alive, but your son is going to be uh, disabled. He's going to be." Here a vegetable and my father, you know, kissed this white man and said, thank you. And wow. it's like, um, did, did you understand what I'm saying? Yes, it's only a vegetable. Hmm. Hmm. But he was just happy you were alive. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when you say, when you say he, did you say he pushed the doctor when you first got there? Yeah, he, he, he pushed the doctor back in, back in the operating room. The other doctor came out and said, okay, your, your son is dead. And my, you know, football father, playing father, you know, grabbed the white doctor and pushed him back in the operating room. He said, you know, come, come back with good news. 
Wow. So, so on one one end, he ran you, carrying you to the hospital, um, and then he basically wouldn't let the doctor leave the, the, the room until you were alive. Wow. And you about to have me, you about to have me teared up in here. That's powerful. That is powerful, especially when we hear about how toxic masculinity is, and yet you see hear a story like that. I'm sorry. I'm just that. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, so, exactly. When, when you always hear that, you know, especially if the son is disabled, you always hear that the father is gone. You mm-hmm. know, so that, that this is the whole story. You know, and all he needed to hear was you were alive. He didn't really, he wasn't phased about anything else. No, 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 he wasn't. <laughs> that's powerful. So. You started doing this activist work as a child, really. Yeah, my my my, my father was um, oh, closely associated to the Black Panthers, so I I say that I was born on the protest line. That's right. Me too. So, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I had no choice but to be an activist. Yeah. So so this is something that you kind of inherited. From your father and, and and the larger Black Panther movement. Well, both my father and both my mother. My mother was really, you know, the, the key. You know, she advocated for all my services and stuff. My father, I went to those house meetings, the Black Panther house meetings, and that's that's when I saw, you know. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so tell us a little bit about some of the so this was in buffalo okay so where did you end up you know transitioning from buffalo yeah, so, so that's in buffalo so i really grew up in new york city in in um, connecticut okay so I grew up you know new york city manhattan you know back when hip-hop was on the street corner <laughs> so, yeah, i saw hip-hop grow up you know um, and in Hartford, Connecticut, you know, well, first met Massachusetts, no, Manchester, Manchester, Connecticut, then Hartford, Connecticut. Wow. Okay. Okay. And and tell us about some of the activist work you did, uh, you know, during that that transitional time after after Buffalo, you know, going into these different spaces. What what kind of work did you find yourself doing? Yeah, you know, I like like I said, you know, being you know part of my uh, my um, father's meeting, I really got into police brutality, you know, work, and this is in the eighties. Mm. This is way before Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and, and you know, in those meetings, they are talking about black disabled men being shot by police. So I got involved with that. Um, I really saw the um, difference between being black and disabled and being um, white and disabled. Because a lot of white disabled um, advocacy groups were coming to me to join. But I said, you know, are are you dealing with black issues? Mm. Like police brutality? And they said, no. I was like, well, how can I? Come, you know, join you the protest curb cuts when black women are being shot, you know, just coming outside. Wow. 
can you talk a little bit about that? Because most people wouldn't associate being black, disabled, and male with police brutality. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what kinds of things you've seen and, and, and advocated against? Yeah, well, like I said, you know, I was I was in my partner's meeting, so they talked about these cases, you know. Mm-hmm. They talked about, you know, police brutality in New York and cases of black disabled men being tipped over in their wheelchairs, you know. This mm. In the 80s, you know. Mm. So, you know, hearing these stories constantly when I was growing up, I was like, wow. And my... My first, um, my first um, involvement in a, in a whole um, movement around police brutality was um, bumpers, Eleanor bumpers in New York, where it was an elderly disabled woman that got shot by police. Mm. So that's, that's when I got, that's when I really got involved. And you know, protesting and going to police commission meetings, and you know, really talking about the display angle, because a lot of times, even today, that the display angle is not talked about in police brutality activism. You can see the whole Black Lives Matter; they don't never talk about disability. Mm. So, although seventy. <laughs> 70% of the cases are, you know, disability cases that are black, disabled, you know, men. So, yeah. Well, let's 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 delve into that a little bit. What first of all, how would you how would you define disability? Because I think most people have, you know, like maybe even a one-dimensional kind of outlook on it. But what does disability mean in your work? Well, you know, we, we have laws that, you know, describe disability, you know, under the Americans with Disability Act, you know, it's a legal, legal law, you know, that describes disability, you know, that limits, you know, life, um, life, um, movements, you know, okay. walking, seeing, learning, um, yeah. Okay. And so would that, would that include, um, you know, psychological or mental issues? Yeah, yeah. mental health. Mental um, health. Mm-hmm. You know, people that have developmental disabilities, like, you know, Down syndrome, um, you know, even, even, um, you know, cancer, you know, you know, sickle cell is really big in the black community. Yes, sickle cell. You know, yeah, yeah. My my wife passed away from sickle cell complicated uh, issues. So you, I hear you. Um, but you can talk about this, you know, in a whole different way. You know, like we we go back to slavery. Most of us don't think about disability in relation to you know black community and slavery. Exactly. Thank you. How, how would you do that? How, can you make sense of that for people who've never thought about that connection? Exactly. That, that really blows my mind around black studies. I, I just don't understand why black studies don't connect with disability scholars, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, of course, as we know, slavery, under slavery, you had to have, you know, a physically fit kind of body. And if you didn't, you know, you, you were dead, you know. 
a lot of black disabled slaves were thrown overboard. Mm-hmm. You know, people are even getting to, you know, quote unquote, the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know? So, and it also on the positive side, and this is the positive side, you know, a lot of hip hop artists say that, um, you know, the dozens, if you play the dozens, the dozens were a group of disabled slaves. Mm. You know, so we, we can say that hip hop, you know, has a disability element going all, all the way back to the dozens. Okay. Okay. I can definitely see what you mean there. And then we're not even, and that would, so, so that would also include, um, you know, black people who were, who were, uh, you know, crippled and harmed as punishment during slavery, would it not? Yeah. People yeah. had to live with those that, you know, after that, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and usually, you know, to, to, um, correct you, usually, you know, the, the inside word for, you know, a disabled community is, is, you know, the, the C word, cripple. But we, we don't, we don't use that outside of, of, of our community. Okay. And, that, and that's the thing about, um, it's one term I came up with, what is called black ableism. Mm-hmm. You know, black ableism is, is killing a lot of black disabled youth. You know, it, we, we are seeing that the black community is useless when it comes to black disabled people because of black ableism. You what know, you, can you expand on that? What do you mean? Yeah, well, what I mean is that, you know, you know, there's, there's all kinds of isms, racism, sexism, but, but ableism is when black non-disabled people discriminate against black disabled people. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, not being aware of the changing of terminology, you know, in 2020, in a lot of black communities still use handicap. Mm-hmm. The term has been out since the 70s. Mm-hmm. So, so all of that, you know, black age, black ableism, you know, comes from, you know, black people not, not recognizing their ableist tendency when it comes to disability. Mm-hmm. So we, we see that a lot in in hip hop, you know, and yeah. Well, and I and I appreciate the correction. I'm I'm familiar with ableism. I've just never heard it applied again to slavery. You know what I mean? So when you talk about like you know having limbs removed, being castrated, you know yeah. things of that nature, I've not heard the terminology applied to that. So, you know, usually if I hear anybody talking about ableism, it's it's usually within the last 20 to 30 years. But seldom do I hear it being applied, you know, in, in terms of a, a different centuries. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, go back to slavery. And I think that's that's one reason that I, I say that the black community needs a national um, black disabled campaign. Because we took up the the slave masters thinking around disability, under mm. slavery. So we have today a, 
a lot of black people think, oh, let me, you know, you can overcome your disability. Mm. It's like it's like saying I'm gonna overcome my race. It doesn't make sense, you know. Mm. It doesn't make sense, you know. Mm. As, and you know, we, we we are still in the medical model when it comes to disability. There's a lot of models that the disability community goes through, and the black community is still in the medical charity model when it comes to disability. So the medical model is like. You know, you something to be fixed, or you overcome it. Ah, uh, I see. Right. So, and the charity model is, you know, we'll just throw charity at you, and see you as a full person. I see. So, so a lot of black disabled people grow up today and not being proud of their heritage of being black and disabled. They always try to overcome it. Like you can't overcome one of your ideas you know mm -hmm. it, it just leads it just leads them to a, a one-way road that's totally left alone wow well you went in a direction that i would say most would never anticipate you actually started delving into uh popular culture and yeah. you know can you talk a little bit about uh crip hop nation uh, talking a little bit about Illin' and Chillin' for Poor Magazine. How did these projects come about? And, and I'm especially interested in National Black Disability. Talk to us about, you know, how those came about and what you do. Well, like, you know, I, I, I go back to my youth. You know, it's all about my activism. And my, my parents always taught me to really think critically about everything. And I, I think that's what's missing in today's today's society. You don't think critically about nothing, you know. Mm. So 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 anyway. So with with that in mind, when I got into activism, I was like, oh, where's my black disabled brothers and sisters? Mm. When I when I saw hip hop on the corner, I was like, where's my black disabled hip hop artists? So I, I always had those questions in mind, mm -hmm. and you know when I got older, I started to put those questions into action. Especially coming out of working at nonprofits and seeing black disabled people getting passed over the services, jobs, and everything. Mm -hmm. I'm not back one one example. One um, experience that um, me and my friend did, we had two people going to um, a disability um, organization to get services. One was white, the other one was black. Both of them dressed to the teeth, both of them had resumes, all that. The white guy got in there, he's sitting there for an hour, came back with an offer of a job. Mm. And with services, black guy was in there for five minutes. Mm. Five minutes came back with nothing, and that that experience taught me. It's like okay, I can't, I can't, I can't go back to my job. I need to start something new. Wow. And, that, and then that's when I started this really advocacy of my minority organization, and that lasted for five years. I got sick of writing. I got sick of 
writing grants all, all, all day. Mm. And I really got into my cultural work. And that's when script hop started. And that's when my poetry started. And also I met Four Magazine. You know, Four Magazine taught me about, you know, poverty issues. And of course, you know, black disabled boys and men had the highest unemployment rate in, in all kinds of records. Wow. Since, since the 80s. This is almost like 90%. Mm. 90%. Mm. So, so, you know, also, so all of those came to the forefront and that's, and that's when, um, you know, after my nonprofit, you know, really got into radio, I was in radio, and I, one, one, um, one show that we did was around disability and hip hop. Mm. And after I came back home from that radio, I got flooded with calls. I bet. And emails. And the emails come from Africa, Germany, everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, let's, let's start Crip Hop. Wow. So, so. What is crip? Break it down. What what do you what is crip hop specifically? So so crip hop is an international um, network of hip hop artists and musicians with disabilities. So it started with myself, Keith Jones, um, Rob Noise Temple. Matter of fact, Rob Noise Temple just passed away a couple of days ago. Wow. So, it started with three black disabled men. And we, we were all activists and we said, you know, we want to see ourselves in hip hop. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how it started. Um, now it's been 12 years. We've been in the UK and in South Africa. We've been all, all over the US. You know, and it, 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 it's no platform. You know, it's not a label, you know, we do advocacy and, you know, we put out music and we also put out um, educational tools. Well, first, first, let me back up and say my condolences uh, to your, your, you know, your co-founder, friend you mentioned. Um, that's powerful. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he was the DJ and the keyboardist for the Shigeo game. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. Okay. So that wow. Um, okay, so you you develop Crip Hop Nation. You're getting international attention. People are writing you from all over the world. What what happens next? And when what time frame are we talking? When what year did you develop Crip Hop Nation? This is 2005, 2006. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Before Clip Population, like I said, you know, uh, this was advocates of minorities organization, and of course, Poor Magazine. Um, at the same time, I I got involved with the New Jersey um, my Minorities with Disability Coalition with Jane Dunham, and then she started. Um, the black, the, the National Black Disability Coalition. So I was there when that started, you know. 
So yeah, so the, the years, you know, flow in, in together. But um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, National Black Disability. Am I yeah, yeah. National Black Disability Coalition. Coalition. Okay. Tell us about that. So the National Black Disability Coalition started with Jane Dunham, myself, and a couple more other people. Jane Dunham was working in New Jersey with um, a nonprofit uh, statewide disability organization, but always um, took um, took black issues to to the court. You know, really, you know, made the organization you know face black disability issues, and she just got tired of always, you know, being you know, we're against the wall. So, you know, we started the National Black Disability Coalition. And and for people who might want to get in contact, um, first, can you tell us what what they can expect from the National Black uh, Disability Coalition and how can they reach you? Yeah, you can go online, just Google National Black Disability Coalition, you know, it's, you know, me, Jane Dunham, and a couple more other people. You know, our website is, is, is the main thing that we do. You know, put out resources. Um, we put out articles. Um, you know, Jane Dunham has a history of, look, of working with legislators. You know, when she was in New Jersey, she started to um, find legislation that really deals with black disability issues, you know, um, but now, you know, because we're older, you know, we're really, you know, putting, you know, some of our age in the website. So that, and then also, um, this year, um, Jane was a part of um, a Black Disabled Summit in Detroit. So yeah, we we support um, black disabled people, um, you know, in cities that are trying to organize. Okay. okay. And now we only we have about five minutes left, but I definitely want to hear about the work because you you mentioned uh, having a column in Poor Magazine, but then also a graphic novel. Can you talk a little bit about those two things? Yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing is the the um, the column started in the nineties. It was the first the first column of of its kind dealing with race and disability. And the first article was on the LA police, the LA TV shooting of Margaret L. Mitchell. a black woman with mental health disabilities. Okay. So we, we started the column with that. You know, the column is still going on now. Now, Quip Hawk has a column. And poor, poor magazine has been kicking butt. I mean, they really do um, radical organizing. They're building houses. They have their own school. They have their own radio station. And they, they've been doing this from the ground up with very little um, funding. Mm. So that's Poor Magazine. Um, Aiden Poor Magazine has a, a press, 
which is which is interesting because I've always wanted a black press to publish my book, but a lot of this is what I come to find out. A lot of black presses don't want to deal with disability. Once again, that black ableism comes up once again. Mm. So, you know, thank God that Four Magazine has a press that put out my graphic novel. Okay. Yeah, and the graphic novel deals with justification in New York and it deals with um, this disabled black um, young woman that's trying to get into, you know, the local hip hop scene, but because of the, because of ableism, she don't see her child until she goes on the internet and sees quip hop, then she gets inspired and yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I've definitely met some young uh, superheroes like that. Shout out to Miss Marissa. Um, you know, so I, I, I applaud the work you've done and it's amazing, man, how much you, you, you've gotten done and especially on a subject that, you know, it doesn't seem like you've had a lot of people really rally around to the extent that there should. So w- what would you say to people about the importance of ableism, about the importance of the work you're doing? What would you say needs to be done differently and what people should be doing? Uh, differently, I think I think people need to come off of you know everything starts with uh, a foreign foundation grant. You know that's mm. that's that's not a movement. A movement starts with the people. You know, black studies started in the community. It didn't start at a college. It started, Absolutely, it absolutely in the community, and that and that's how we're gonna ground. You know, black disabled men, you know, black disabled artists, you know, we gotta ground it first in our community. So that means going back to the community and what I say, re-teaching, you have to split down the negative teaching that the black community has been getting for decades around disability. So you have to split that down, then rebuild them back up with you know, black disabled education. Absolutely. Well, I want to I want to thank my guest, uh, you know, Leroy Moore, for coming in for speaking to us. I really appreciate your time, brother, and the work that you're doing. I am here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking fallacies, ATM machines, lottery tickets unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.